Pastor John will be preaching from 1 John 2, verses 18 through 27. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and know that no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. I write this to you about those who would deceive you, but the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I received this box in the mail about a week or so ago, and uh, inside it says, Because some are judging us unfairly, please let us tell you what we believe. The Unification Church. These are the Moonies. And inside are three videotapes of lectures from their theologians, a copy of the Divine Principle, which along with our scriptures, they say, are their scriptures, and a copy of God's Warning to the World by Sun Moon, a message from prison dated 1985, and then some nice glossy brochures like this with pictures of nice families with children who are all converted and happy in the Unification Church. And this is good. I was really glad to get these because now... I have straight from the horse's mouth what he believes, and I want to read you some excerpts from pages 122 to 144 from that book, which I wrote down here. I'm making a bold declaration, says Moon. Jesus did not come to die. Jesus was murdered. The crucifixion of Jesus was the result of human faithlessness, the most egregious and destructive lack of faith was to be found in John the Baptist. This means that Jesus did not come to die on the cross. If Jesus came to die on the cross, would he not need a man to deliver him up? You know that Judas Iscariot is the disciple who betrayed him. If Jesus fulfilled God's will with his death on the cross, then Judas should be glorified as the man who made the crucifixion possible. Judas would have been aiding God's dispensation. But Jesus said of Judas, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Furthermore, if God had wanted his Son to be crucified, 
he did not need 4,000 years to prepare the chosen people. Now, many people will ask, what about the prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the death of Jesus on the cross? Ah, we must know that there are dual lines of prophecy in the Bible. One group prophesies Jesus' rejection and death. The other, such as Isaiah chapter 9, 11, and 60, prophesy the glorious ministry of Jesus when the people accepted him as the Son of God. Why then did God prophesy in two contradictory ways in the Bible? Answer, God did not know how the people would respond to his providence for the Messiah. He had no choice but to predict two contradictory results, dual prophecies, each possibility depending on human actions. Once again, we find in the Bible a dual prophecy concerning the coming of the Lord of the second advent. Revelation 1-7 definitely prophesied the arrival of the Lord in the clouds. However, 1 Thessalonians 5-2 states, For you yourselves know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. There are then two opposing prophecies. I am just revealing what I know to be the truth. The Lord cannot appear in that kind of supernatural fashion. As a man, he must come up from the bottom of human misery. He must come to the most miserable nation and lift the human status from the slave position to the servant position, to the adopted child position, to the direct child position, and by physically putting together the kingdom of heaven here on earth, that is the mission of the Messiah. God needs to find his perfected Adam, an Adam who instead of betraying God will become one with God, and then Adam must restore his bride in the position of Eve. Perfected Adam and perfected Eve, united together, will be able to overcome Satan and expel him from the world. In this way, the first righteous ancestors of humankind will begin a new history. Children, it is the last hour. You have heard that Antichrist is coming. Behold, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. What strikes me as I read these forthright denials of historic biblical Christianity, the atoning death of Jesus, the omniscience of God, the sovereignty of God, the glorious second coming of our Lord, what strikes me is how easily people are deceived. I sat with five Moonies in my office last year, and Tom came in, and every one of them came from churches in the Twin Cities. Two things are responsible for that. One, a failure to be grounded in the Word of God, and the other, a failure to have a vital experience of the Holy Spirit in a community of believers. Or to put it another way, when people have no theological depth and no personal living experience of the Holy Spirit, they are sitting ducks for the antichrists of our day. Now, these verses that Tom read, verses 18 to 27 of 1 John 2, are written to a situation just like ours. And... Even though it's a fairly complicated text, I think there are two basic things John is trying to do. One is to deepen the church's understanding of the word of the apostles. 
and the other is to deepen their experience of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find out how those things work together to protect us from deception. So here is my outline in advance. I have three observations to make. The first one would be, we are in the last hour of deception. The second point would be, The Word of God and the Spirit of God protect us from deception and lead us to eternal life. And the third point would be, Therefore, let the Word abide in you, and you abide in the Spirit. Number one, we are in the last hour of deception. Verse 18 begins, Children, it is the last hour. Now that was 2,000 years ago. And that could be troubling if we didn't meditate on what the New Testament meant by last hour or last days. What the New Testament means uniformly by the last days are the days that began with the coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah entered into history, the last days entered into history and only God knows how long they will last. Let me refresh your memory by just mentioning some passages where this is said. You remember what? Peter said on the day of Pentecost, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days. It shall be God declares, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Last days began with Pentecost. First Corinthians ten eleven. the Old Testament was written down for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages has come. Hebrews 1, 1. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these Last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Hebrews 9, 26. He appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 1, 20. Christ was destined before the foundation of the world and was made manifest at the end of the times for our sake. So right through the New Testament, you have this witness that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the coming of Messiah the first time, The last days were inaugurated, an indefinite period of time characterized by mainly the presence of the Messiah, now exalted to the right hand, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And then a third thing mentioned by John here in verse 18 is this. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. In other words, the last hour is characterized by an intensification or an enlargement of the influence of the spirit of Antichrist cropping up in all manner of little Antichrists all over the place. Now, when he said, as you have heard, I think he was referring back to Matthew 24 where Jesus said, many will come in my name saying, I am Christ. And they will lead many astray, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So John sees evidence that this is the last hour because not only does he see the Holy Spirit being poured out and the gospel surging forth in victory in many places in the world, but he sees the surrounding world in the grip of the evil one and many antichrists rising up to oppose the truth of the doctrine of Christ. And if John saw it in his day, how much more should we say, let us be alert for we are in the last hour for we are surrounded by many 
antichrists. Apparently, John's view of the end times is that there would come someday the antichrist. Most of us think in terms of a singular figure rising up at the end of the age who would embody evil, surround the church and in uh and gather together the forces of evil and oppose the church until God destroys him. But John says that this spirit of Antichrist is all over the place in the world in these last days, and there are cropping up many Antichrists. And apparently the essence of the Antichrist for him is the denial that Jesus was the Christ or the denial that the Son of God took on flesh. Let me read for you the only places in the New Testament where the term Antichrist is used. John is the only writer in the New Testament that uses the word. They're all right here in 1 John, except one, which is in 2 John. So let's read them. You can follow me. The first one is in verse 18. And you try to catch on to what he means by Antichrist here. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Next, verse 22. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Now, let me just pause there to make a comment, because we've got to go beneath catchphrases and slogans in our doctrine. Moon would say, I don't deny the Son. I don't deny Christ. I believe in Christ. But he wouldn't mean anything like what we would mean, denying the atonement, his glorious return, his omniscience. We have to do theology. We have to study doctrine. We can't just toss off catchphrases, Jesus is Lord, or he's the Son of God. All manner of people fill up those phrases with meanings we don't share. So when you hear this and it says, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the father and the son, don't assume that the person at your door who says, I don't deny the son, doesn't deny the son. We must find out what they mean. Chapter four, verse three, every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you heard that it was coming. And now it is in the world already. And then one more. Second John, verse 7. And this is probably the closest definition you'll get to Antichrist in the New Testament. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver And the Antichrist. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that John has a great burden for the church that we be alert to the reality of what he calls the liar, the deceiver, and the Antichrist. We live in a period that is shot through with the spirit of Antichrist, and there are multitudes of Antichrists rising up and gathering followings. We shouldn't expect any otherwise. If you look at chapter 5, verse 19, one of the most terrible statements is made about the world we live in. It says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And I'm so glad when I read that, that I've already read chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So my first point is this. We today, along with John, live in an hour of great deception, a last hour. Second point, the word of God and the spirit of God protect us from deception in this hour and bring us to eternal life. Probably the most important thing to focus on in this passage is how the word and the spirit work together to guard us from deception. And the first thing I want to point out is that the truth or knowing the truth about Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Verses 20 and 21. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you all know I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and know that no lie is of the truth. So the reason I say that to know the truth about Christ is a gift of the Holy Spirit is because it depends on what he calls the anointing here. Notice in verse 20, you have an anointing by the Holy One and you know. So the knowing relates to the anointing. And verse 27, drop down to verse 27 and look at the same idea with different words. The anointing which you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. So you see the connection? Whatever this anointing is, it enables you to know in verse 20 and it enables you to do without teachers in verse 27. This is important, whatever this is. What is this anointing? I think it refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit into your life when you are born again. One of the reasons I think that is because in Acts 10:38 it says Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. And in 1 John 4:13 it says that God has given us of his spirit. So the anointing in verse 20 and verse 27 is the work of the Holy Spirit being poured into your life. Now, if that's true, let's go back and paraphrase those two verses and see what the implication is. Verse 20 would go like this. You have the Holy Spirit from God in you, and so you know the truth. Verse 27 would go something like this. The Holy Spirit, which you received from God, abides in you, and so you have no need that anyone should teach you. And here's what I think he means by that, no need for teachers. I think he means, you don't need these progressive prophets who've just left the church to come back and teach you their new discoveries about Christ. You don't need any additional revelations or instructions from these people. You've got the anointing. You've got the Holy Spirit. So it's plain, I think, that knowing the truth about Christ being able to do without additional teachers who bring you new revelations is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a result of the anointing of God. Now, that raises a very tough question for us, big, important question. How does the Holy Spirit enable you to know the truth about Christ? And the reason that's important is because I'm sure that the Antichrists 
were claiming to be anointed by the Holy Spirit. We know that because of chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul or John warns against them in these words. He says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the Antichrist would say to me at this point in the sermon, right on, Piper. Knowledge is dependent on the spirit and the anointing. And we've got it. And have we got news for you about the incarnation of your so-called son of God? Now, what are we going to say? It's very important to ask how you respond to that kind of question. Sun Moon claims it. I mean, he says flat out, which of these contradictory prophecies are we going to choose between? God didn't tell us. I'll tell you. It's virtually what every sectarian leader and cult leader has done throughout all of history. The claim to have a special revelation from God or, as in the case, say, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, the claim to have some specially endowed prophets who can dig into and unearth the hidden meaning of Scripture that none of you poor people can see. How does the anointing of the Spirit enable the saints to know the truth and protect them from deception? How is this anointing that we claim different from the anointing and Revelation that they claim. The key is verse 24. At least it's John's key to how he understands the difference. What this verse shows is that the truth that the Holy Spirit enables us to know is a truth that was once for all delivered through the preaching of the apostles. It says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, you can't miss the focus of that verse, can you? Twice he says, what you heard from the beginning, what you heard from the beginning, the truth that you had from the beginning, let it abide. Don't go on and think you need new revelation. John is not saying, therefore, that the anointing of the Spirit enables you to know additional facts about Christ than was delivered in the word that you heard from the beginning. On the contrary, John bends over backwards in this book to keep from giving any impression that any of you need anything new. And if you didn't need anything new in John's day then 2,000 years later, we sure don't need anything new after 2,000 years of reflection on the original doctrine. Do you remember, this should sound familiar to you from a couple of weeks ago. You remember the teaching about the new commandment, chapter 2, verse 7? John almost choked on that phrase, and we tried to figure out why. Here's what he said in verse 7 of chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. 
In other words, John just makes every effort he can to keep from giving the impression to this church that what they need in order to stand firm is something new. They don't need anything new. All they need to do is let what they heard from the beginning abide in them. Turn with me to uh, 2 John verse 9. Here is a way of putting it that is such a good antidote to so much Love of newness today. I I remember a college class in speech my sophomore year in which we gathered on one of the days and sat in a circle and the teacher said, let's go around the circle and everybody say what uh, grabs you in a speaker. And the first girl said something new. And so sitting next to her, I said something true. And I've been saying that ever since. We don't need anything new. We ought not to be enamored by new things. In fact, we ought to be suspicious of new things in the area of doctrine. Now, look at what this verse says in 2 John 9. Anyone who goes ahead. Now, that's the that Greek word for go ahead is just progress. Anybody who's a progressive. And does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine has both the Father and the Son. So you see, the opposite of abiding, resting in the truth once for all delivered is Going ahead to new revelations, secret teachings that come from Mohammed, Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, Jim Jones, Sun Moon, and an ever larger stream of antichrists. Therefore, the work of the Holy Spirit is not to expand or to change what the apostles taught. On the contrary, And this is an amazing statement for John to make. Comes from chapter 4, verse 2. The Spirit, Almighty God the Spirit, submits Himself to be tested by the word of the apostles. This is just astonishing. Chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. The Spirit must agree with the apostolic teaching of Christ or it is not the Spirit of God. And that is phenomenal. Oh, that we might become a church that's oriented like that. That all claims to spiritual insight are tested by nothing new, but only what we heard from the beginning. Every one of you ought to be able to hold there in your hand in the pew this book and test everything that comes out of my mouth by this book and reject anything that doesn't square which was with what was once for all delivered to the saints. We don't reject Mr. Moon's warning to the world because we boast in a superior revelation from the Spirit. In our prayer, 
We reject Mr. Moon's teaching because it does not square with the faith once for all delivered to the saints through his holy apostles. So the work of the Holy Spirit, concluding the second point, is not to take us beyond the teaching of the apostles. What is it then? Four things. The work of the Spirit is to help us accept and abide in the teaching of the apostles. The work of the Spirit is to help us grow in our understanding of the teaching of the apostles. The work of the Spirit is to strengthen us in our power to practice the teaching of the apostles. And the work of the Spirit is to increase our confidence in the teaching of the apostles. It does not change. It does not add to the teaching of the apostles. Which leads us finally and very briefly to our third admonition or point. Therefore, we should let the word abide in us and we should abide in the spirit. This long text has just two imperatives in it. One is in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. That's the word of God, the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament. The second command is in verse 27, near the end. It says, as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it taught you, abide in him, that is, in the spirit of Christ. So here they are. Let the word abide in you and you abide in the spirit. And I can't help but think of two texts that you're all familiar with from the writings of the Apostle Paul. One is in Colossians, one is in Ephesians, and they are parallel texts. The one says, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The other is Ephesians 5.18, which says, be filled with the spirit as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be filled with the Spirit in Paul corresponds to abide in the Spirit of Christ in John. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in Paul corresponds to abide or let the word abide in you in John. Those are the two hallmarks of the church. And my prayer for Bethlehem as I leave and go to West Africa with Noel is that the word might so abide in you And you might so abide in the spirit that week in and week out, you will gather here to worship in truth. And week in and week out, you will gather here to worship in spirit. For the Lord seeks people to worship in spirit and in truth. Guard yourselves from the deceiver and the antichrist. Love the word. Live in the word, pray the word, memorize the word. And before every sentence, ask God to open you to all that the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and through you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is what he has promised us, eternal life. And now unto him who is able to keep you from falling... And to present you without blemish before the throne of his glory with rejoicing. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, 
majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen.